you uh, just turn to someone next to you and say, I'm so glad you're here today. Can you say that? Just greet each other in the name of the Lord. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad to be here um, this wonderful Sunday, uh, Sunday morning. Uh, After we hear the word of God, we're going to come to the communion table. We're going to partake of God's grace as we hear um, the word of God preached, and then we'll see it proclaimed, and we'll see it enacted through the sacrament. Um, This is what we'll be doing as we uh, go throughout our time today. I don't know if um, any of you are into uh, Las Vegas shows, um, magicians, uh, comedians, things like that. Um, I really love uh, I, I really love uh, magic tricks. I like watching magic tricks. I love magicians. Um, there's a famous magician duo in Las Vegas. In fact, it's the longest headlining act in uh, Las Vegas history. It's a duo called Penn and Teller. Has anyone ever seen the Penn and Teller show? Okay, a few of us have. Yeah, Penn and Teller are... Um, one guy, his name is Penn Gillette. He's the talker. He's a big guy. Uh, the other guy, a guy named Teller, he doesn't speak. As far as I know, he doesn't speak, but he uh, does a lot of pantomime, and he's just kind of a funny guy. And they work together to do this uh, comedy magic show in, in Vegas. And being in, in Sin City, it's not necessarily a clean show that, that um, I know of. I think uh, Penn Gillette, the bigger guy who talks, oftentimes uh, uses foul language, uses coarse language. Uh, he's an outspoken atheist, which means he does not believe there is a God. Um, his religious viewpoint or his philosophy of life is called scientific skepticism. He believes that if you cannot prove it by science, then it cannot be true. Uh, empiricism is the king. And these are some of the things that he believes. I remember about 10 years ago, I read this article, <clears throat> this interview with, with Penn Gillette, and he said, recently, a Christian gave me a Bible and asked me if I know Jesus. <laughs> and he said, I, I don't believe in Jesus. Um, I don't know him, but I'm thankful that he did that. He kind of went on to explain why. He said, a lot of people usually are afraid to talk about Jesus with someone like me, or with me in particular, because I'm coarse, I'm brash. I'm not, you know, I can, uh, I'll get offended by them and I'll get mad at them. But he said, I'm really glad that he did. And then he kind of turned it on Christians and he said, if you Christians really believe that every person is going to die and that after they die that every person is going to stand before God and they'll either spend an eternity in heaven with God or in hell apart from God, and you believe that Jesus Christ and the good news that you preach is the only way to heaven, then could there be anything more unloving than for you to withhold the gospel from somebody because you're afraid of offending them? Is that challenging to you? That's convicting to me. He said, how indifferent do you need to be to the soul of a person to believe that you have the cure for every human sickness that will impact not only life on earth but for all of eternity and for the simple fact that you're afraid of offending somebody or risking a relationship, you do not share the gospel with them. How callous of heart do you need to be in order for that to be your stance towards those who don't believe in Jesus? He said, listen, guys, If you're standing in the middle of a street and a truck was coming to hit you and you didn't believe a truck was coming, but I believed with all of my heart because I saw it coming that it's going to hit you, I would tell you regardless of how angry you get at me, regardless of how much you might hate me, regardless of how much you might think I'm wrong, 
I would keep on telling you that a truck is going to hit you. And if it gets close enough to you, I would tackle you to get out of harm's way because I love you, even if it means you'll never talk to me again in my life. It's worth risking the relationship if your life is on the line. And then he said, this atheist, he said, eternal life is much more important than that. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, that's some deep truths from the lips of one who doesn't serve our Jesus, doesn't even know the gospel. Today, I want to talk about how we can, I don't know about how we can grow in this heart, but yeah, maybe to grow in this heart, but what is the heart of someone who lives for the sake of the harvest? We're going to look at a passage, maybe not a passage we've looked at, but a passage whose words may be familiar to you. It's going to come from Luke chapter 10. Every couple years, I want to keep on the forefront of our thoughts as a congregation and of my heart as a, as a child of God and as a servant of God and on your hearts as a child of God or as a seeker of God, what it means that we are a church called Harvest. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're harvest? Does that have anything? Is it just because we, we're, we're out in an orange grove? Is that why we're called harvest? Does it have anything to do with anything biblical? I want to explain to you why we're called harvest and what that means for you. And if you're a member of our church, especially, I think this message is incumbent upon you to really hear, not only to hear, but allow it to transform your heart. Typically, we read out of Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, which is the verses in which we get our name and, and kind of the, the, the headline verse of our church. But today, I want to read from the parallel passage in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says the same thing, but he kind of expounds on it in later verses. I want to read from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about um, this chapter and see what God says to us, and I think it's going to be important, and I think it can literally impact not only this world, but it can impact eternity if we take it to heart. If I take it to heart, I really believe this is going to change my life, and it can change yours as well. This is God's word. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. This is God's word. Typically, like I said, we read from Matthew 9, and in Matthew 9, it, it sets a context, but the three main verses here in, in, in verse 2 are the same. Matthew 9, 36, uh, Luke chapter 10, it says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What does that mean when Jesus was speaking in Matthew's gospel? Matthew says that Jesus has been talking to the crowds. He's been, he's been healing them. He's been doing miracles amongst them. And they were following him. And it says when Jesus saw the crowds of people, it said he had compassion on them. You break up that word compassion with passion, with suffering, to suffer with. Jesus saw the crowds of people and he says, I suffer 
with them because I don't see them as merely, oh, look, there's Jay-Z, there's Beyonce, there's your famous people, there's people at school, there's the cheerleaders, there's the jocks, there's the nerd. He says, I don't see them like that. I see every person out there, and I see them as suffering. And he, his heart is filled with this sense of compassion for them. He says they are harassed and they're helpless. The word harassed means they're beat up by this world. They're beat up by life. They're left to die. Helpless means that they're all alone. They have no support in their lives. Jesus is saying, this is what I see when I look not at the physical, not at their faces, not at their clothes, not at the things that, um, the, the, the wealth in their bank account or the kind of cards. I don't, I, he doesn't look at those things. He says, when I look at the spiritual reality of the crowds of people that you and I see at the mall, the crowds of people that we see at Publix, the crowds of people we see at the Winter Garden Village, the crowds of people that congregate around lockers at school, the crowds of people that gather around the, I don't know if they still have water coolers in offices, but the, the crowds of people that gather together like that. He says, the spiritual reality that I see, he says, I'm moved with compassion. I suffer with them because I see them suffering. They are harassed, they are alone, they're left to die, they have no support to fend through this broken world on their own. And Jesus says, I suffer with them. Which begs the question, as we look out, do we see the people with compassion? We see the person who looks like they've got it all. Do we see them with a broken sense of compassion for the brokenness in their lives? Do we look at the person who's, uh, we, we judge them because of their, 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 their lifestyle choices, because of the clothes they wear, because of the people that they date, because of the things that they put into themselves. We look at people like that, he, he says, do you see them with a sense of compassion or do you just judge them? Because a lot of times we just judge them without ever thinking the struggle that led them to get to that point in their life without thinking how much the enemy is lying to them to bring them to that point in their lives, how much they are fighting and how desperate they are that causes them to act out in the way that they do. Jesus says, I see all of that stuff because the spiritual reality is I suffer with them because I see them as harassed and helpless like sheep wandering around in this battlefield of wolves without a shepherd. And the question Jesus confronts us with then is do we see that in our friends? Do we see that in our coworkers? Heartache, broken pieces, ruined lives are why you died on Calvary. Your touch is what we long for. You have given life to me. Do we see that when we look at the lives of other people? Because this is what Jesus sees and this is what he implores with us to see. And in Luke's gospel, he takes those words and then he breaks it down a little further. And so I want to talk about what is the heart of a harvester? What is the attitude of a harvester? If you want to live for the sake of the harvest, if you want to live out the fulfillment of our name as a congregation, then what does that look like? There are a lot of things that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. But three things I want to point out today. The first thing is this. Okay, first thing is this. Harvesters understand the urgency. There is urgency associated with the harvest. Okay, there's an urgency associated with the harvest. I, um, I get some emails now and then from a group called the Society of St. Andrew, and I'm not altogether sure, to be honest, 
who they are or how I got on this email list, but basically it's a group of people who are looking for volunteers to glean harvest fields when the crops are ready. And so they'll send out a message saying, hey, you know what, we're looking for a youth group to come out and to glean uh, the corn in Zellwood, or we're looking for uh, a group of 10 people to come and, and, and pick oranges. And every now and then, I get this message, and I remember getting one maybe about uh, several months ago. It said, we are in urgent need of 10 or 15 people to come and harvest this crop. The harvest, they didn't use these words, but the harvest is plentiful, but we need more workers because if we don't get them by this Saturday, then we'll have to throw out all of the crops because the crops will go bad. What are they saying? They're saying what we know, that there is a sense of urgency. There is a timing that is involved in the harvest. When the harvest is ready, it requires harvesters to go and harvest the harvest. That's what he's saying. He's saying the harvest here is plentiful. See, don't take it from me. This is what Jesus says. Verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Verse 3, he says, go. If you look in your English version, there's an exclamation point. He's saying, go! <laughs> Not, hey, when you got time, go. When you're ready, right, two by two, yeah, once you've got your stuff together, yeah, just w- w- when you got some time, go, go head on out. He says, go, go now. Don't take anything, anything with you. And then it says at the end of verse 4, he says, do not greet anyone on the road. Say, there's no time for small talk. The harvest is abundant. You have not a minute to waste. You have not a minute to lose. You got to go. You got to go. You got to get going because there's a harvest that is abundant and there's a harvest that is ready. And if we miss this window, then we can miss our opportunity. You know, we, we had a, a staff retreat this past week, Josiah, myself, um, Reverend Beck, and, and Reverend Inky. And for uh, the past many years, staff retreat, staff meetings would basically be Pastor Inky and me, and, and we, would, we would talk. He would ask how my heart is doing. He would ask what problems I'm having. Uh, he would encourage me, and then we'd go over our schedule, and then we'd pray. As we go over the schedule, he'd say, all right, David, I'm going here, I'm going here, I'm going here. Remember this, remember these things. And as I look at his schedule for the past 10 years or so, um, I look at him with kind of this, like, you are a wild man. <laughs> you're like Superman. You have a crazy schedule with all that you do here, then you're traveling around the world and doing all of these things. And, and he, he says, David, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I need to calm down, right? I need to rest. He said, this year is like this. Next year, I'll rest. That's what he said. He said this every year for the past like eight, nine, ten years. It's like, I know next year, I'm going to slow down. Next year, I'm going to slow down. But this year at our staff retreat, He didn't say that. As he was going through his schedule, and at the end of it all, we finished at the end of June, he said, I don't have much time left. He said, I don't have all the time. I'm busier than I've ever been, but I got to keep on going. I got to keep on going. There's so many churches that need the help. There's so many people who need the gospel. There's so many places I got to go. I can't slow down. My window is limited, and it's closing quickly. I don't have all day. I don't have all these years left. I've just got a few, and I want to give everything that I have until the end. There's an urgency 
that he feels because he understands the limitations of time when it comes to the harvest. See, when Jesus says, go, don't talk with anyone on the road, we thought, Jesus is saying that. He's always talking hyperbolically. He's always saying there's only two. He's not. A lot of times we think he's a wolf, he's he's crying wolf, a boy crying wolf, and you got to hurry, you got to go, it's happening. And and, and the only time we ever feel that sense of urgency is when it hits close to home, right? When we get a phone call that tells us that someone we thought was going to have all these years doesn't have all that much time anymore. And then we begin to feel the urgency. But you never know. See, we live as if everybody's got this ticking time clock that's going to say 70, 80, 90, 100 years, but it's not like that. It's not like that. We never know. It says the harvest now is plentiful and it's ready. And he's just looking for people who say, I'll go. And I'll take the message of hope to those in need. Because there is an urgency that comes with the harvest. And like Penn Jillette says, Hey, you, you rather you got to risk the relationship because we're not talking about a harvest of crops here. We're talking about souls that are eternal here. We're talking about people, not produce. We're talking about the hearts and the souls and the eternal destinies of men and women that you come into contact with every day of your life. And as Keith Green said, our generation of believers is responsible, in a sense, for our generation of souls. And the question is, what will we do about that responsibility? What will we do with that burden that's in our hearts? I think I've shared some time ago, about 50 um, years ago, there's a man named Don Ritchie. There's a place in Australia called The Gap, called The Gap, <clears throat> not, not the clothing store, um, but it's a scenic location where uh, I think there's cliffs and there's water, and it has become the number one place in Australia for people to go to commit suicide. And over the years, countless people have taken their lives there. It's like the Golden Gate Bridge of, London, of, of, of Sydney, Australia, of Australia. This man 50 years ago named Don Ritchie moved into a home right across the way from the gap so that he could watch people who are going to end their lives. And he says every day he would see somebody, he will go out there. And he would call out to them, and they would engage in conversation. He would invite them into his home right there for some tea or coffee or for conversation. And I I think when he died, when Don Ritchie died, he he said that he had saved 160 people. But there are others who say, no, he saved well over 500 people. But he said, I saved about 160 people from ending their lives there. I don't know what his religious affiliation is, if he's a believer, but um, some people have tried to take him down with them. Other people have called him an angel. But when they asked him, why'd you move here? He said, it's really simple. I can't just sit there and let them die. I can't just sit there and do nothing. I've got to do something about it. got to do something about it. Are there people in your life who when you get to the other side of glory, when you stand before God, there will be people there who say, it's because of you that I'm here. It's because of you. 
because you gave me hope, because you gave me life, because you brought me to church, because you shared the gospel, because you took a risk, because you risked a relationship in order that I might know the good news of Jesus. That's why I'm here. Are there people like that in your life who will stand with you for all eternity because of the investment that you made, because you felt the urgency of the harvest and you gave yourself to them? This can happen any day. Olive and I, my, Olivia and I, my, we, were, uh, we were eating uh, breakfast this week. We were at this restaurant. I like to go to the same restaurant um, over and over and over because I want to see the same people and I want to have a relationship with these people. And so at this one restaurant we're going in, I was, I was feeling a little bit under the weather. That's my excuse. But as you'll see, sickness is no excuse for sin because it is sinful. But I came into that restaurant, into that place, and, and there's a dude that I see when I come in there, and I started bad-mouthing him to Olive. <laughs> I said, Olive, this cat is, he annoys me because he always talks, always talks to me. And a lot of times, some of the things he says make me feel weird, make me feel uncomfortable. Last time I came in here, he's like, hey, man, you look really nice today. And I was just wearing, like, jeans and a T-shirt. I was like, I was like, thanks, man. And it, wasn't, it wasn't because he's a dude complimenting a dude. It's not that. It, it's because it's like he tries so hard to make me feel comfortable, but he makes me feel uncomfortable. You know people like that? Like they just talk and talk and talk and talk. And, and at a certain point, I didn't have anything else to say to him. And so he's like, I forgot what exactly. You could ask Olive what he said. But he's like saying all this stuff. And um, I don't even remember. But... I, I, we got, we got, we, he took our order, and then we sat down, and I was like, man, do you see what I'm talking about? This guy's annoying. There's a fine line between customer service and customer annoyance, and he crosses that every single time. And so I was just listening to me talk and listening to me talk and listening to me talk, and then we we're eating our food, and at the end, I was like, all right, let's go. She's like, okay, go invite him to church. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> invite him to where? To church, I was like, no, I'm not going to invite him to church. I ain't going to do that. I said, let's go. And so we walked out. But as I thought about it, that was on Tuesday. I think it was on Tuesday. Something, I forgot when it was. But the more I began soaking in these words that I'm preaching to you now, that I'm preaching to my own heart, as I preached it to myself throughout this week, began to realize that no matter how frustrated a person might make me, no matter how annoying a person might be, the reality is that young man is going to stand before his maker one day, and he's going to have to give an account for his life. And if he does not know Jesus, then that is not to my glory that I badmouthed him in this life. And so one day, one day very soon, I'm going to invite him to our church. And so if you see a guy who comes in who seems like he ought to be part of our greeting ministry, <laughs> but he's never been here before, then you might know and you might judge him like I did. But I ask that we would see with different eyes that every person in this world is going to spend an eternity somewhere, either with God in heaven in eternal glory or apart from God in eternal condemnation. And the heart of a harvester understands that there's an urgency associated with the harvest, and there is no time to waste. But we've got to go. Got to go. That's what Jesus says, and that's the first thing, first thing that we see. Second thing that we see 
that harvesters go into uncomfortable places for the harvest. It's going to get harder and harder as we go through this time. It's going to, uh, the heat will m- maybe get turned up on us, but the harvest requires and demands, any harvest does. You know, in every, I think in March or April, there's a blueberry farm about three minutes from our home. We love going to this, well, I can't say we love going to this blueberry farm. I take that back. We love eating the blueberries from that blueberry farm. I love blueberries. Daniel fast starts tomorrow. Blueberries are awesome for the Daniel fast, high in antioxidants. They're great with yogurt, not for Daniel fast necessarily, but they're great with yogurt, great with, uh, I don't know what else you put, uh, great in smoothies. It's awesome. I like eating blueberries in my cereal. I like eating blueberries in my Uh, In my oatmeal, I like eating blueberries with my ice cream, with everything. I like blueberries with a fox. I like to eat them in a box. I like blueberries. Yes, I I love them, Sam, I am. I love blueberries. But I will tell you what, I have never, ever, ever in my life been to the blueberry farm that's three minutes from my house. Do you know why? Because I, I have been to a blueberry farm. I went one time in Seattle. And I was picking blueberries, and after about five minutes, I said, I'm done. I've got enough blueberries. Let's go. Because picking blueberries is not easy. Sometimes to get the good ones, you have to go underneath to get your pants all dirty. I wasn't expecting to get all dirty. I wasn't expecting to get all messy. And especially here at the blueberry farm here in April in Orlando, it gets mad hot. And so you'll get burned if you're out there. There's no shelter. It's not an indoor greenhouse. You've got to be under the sun. And so you're baking. You've got to wear a hat. You start sweating. You've got to bring the kids because they want to come to blueberry, blueberry patch. And, and then they start complaining. It's hot. We don't want to be here. Can you hold me? And then we're trying to pick these blueberries and we're sweating. You've got to get all up underneath. So I've never been to the blueberry farm here in Orlando. I leave it instead to my 70-year-old in-laws who love going there. And they pick blueberries and then they freeze them. The reason I don't like it, man, I love the fruit of the harvest. But I don't oftentimes like going into those uncomfortable places to reap the harvest. But look at what Jesus says. Verse 3, go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. In the same breath that he tells us that the harvest is plentiful, here's where the harvest is plentiful. It's amongst the wolves. And so go, I'm sending you out as a sheep, as a lamb among the wolves. If you know anything about the animal kingdom, um, I, don't, I don't really know much about the animal kingdom. I know a lot about how to read a commentary that tells me about the animal kingdom. But they'll say this, you will never find a sheep among the wolves. Why is that? Well, because, one, sheep are pack animals and they travel together. You will oftentimes hear of a wolf among the sheep. But sheep will not go in the midst of wolves, because a wolf will kill them. They won't last but a couple seconds. There, uh, I was reading this. There's a, um, uh, an author named Philip Keller who was a shepherd, and he wrote a book on the shepherd's experience of Psalm 23. It is fascinating. If you want your mind to be blown wide open about what David as a shepherd was writing in Psalm 23, you got to read Philip Keller. But he says one time, uh, in one night, he says, two 
wolves came into his sheep pen. And I, I said it right in the first service. I don't remember if I'm going to say it right here. But it was either 192 or 292 of his sheep were killed in one night by two wolves. Wolf just went in. He, he woke up in the morning. He saw they were dead. The sheep were dead. Their guts had been ripped out of them. Their wool had been taken out of them. Blood had been drained. Their necks had been snapped. All these crazy things. And, and he said, for all my years of being a shepherd, he said, I have never once seen a wolf amongst my sheep. They're that cunning. They're that crafty. They're that sneaky that they get out by the time you can try to find them. The reason why you'll never find a sheep amongst the wolves is because they know that they'll get killed. The animosity that a wolf has towards a sheep is extremely well documented. And the fear that a sheep has getting anywhere near wolves is extremely well documented. That's why sheep need a shepherd to fend off the wolves, to fight the wolves, to bring them into the sheep pen. But here what Jesus says here is go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Why is he saying that? I think there's a couple reasons why. The, the first reason is a lot of times we feel like as we go amongst the crowds of people, they're like wolves to us. I just feel like a little lamb. But here the good shepherd is saying, I am sending you into their midst because they are the harvest that is ready to be reaped. In other words, the place you once saw as a place of fear, you don't see them as a place of fear anymore. You see them with different eyes. The place that used to be a place of fear, you go in with a confidence that you're being sent into that place. You have nothing to fear. You know what? Probably the greatest fear of humanity is today. In fact, this was true maybe in, in all these studies said this. The two greatest fears of a human being, number one is public speaking. Number two is death. And so Seinfeld used to say that if you're at a funeral, the majority of people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> I don't know if you have a fear of public speaking, but I will tell you that growing up in my life, uh, for most of my life, I had a pretty intense fear of public speaking, social anxiety. Uh, my, um, if you've been here long enough, you'll hear, hear me tell stories of how my teachers thought that there was something wrong with me, that I would never talk in class. But when I felt called to ministry, God began to change me. And this is the one prayer that I prayed. When I felt God was calling me into ministry and I was discerning that sense of call, this is the one prayer I prayed. I said, Father, would you give me a passion to communicate your truth. That's the one thing I prayed. Because God, if, I could, if you're, I've been changed by this truth, the word of God has power to transform lives. God, if you could give me a passion to communicate your truth, I will do whatever, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I will follow you wherever you want me to go. And in time, as God began to answer this prayer, what used to be, I would stand up in front of a group of people and be scared of the people. I'm going out as a lamb amongst the wolves, ready to be killed. No longer. As the Lord began to change me, he began to fill me with a holy confidence that said, you have nothing to be afraid of. You go in the confidence because what you have to say can change the life of every single person here. You don't need to be afraid of them. They need what you've got. 
And so fear was replaced by love. In fact, that's one of the things I write on top of my sermon manuscript every week as I write it. One of two questions that Francis Chan asks himself. One, he says, who am I trying to please, God or man? I use that as a heart check. But the second question I ask, the second question he asks is, do I love these people? Do I really love these people? Do I really love these people enough to die for them? And with that, I come with the word of God. I'll tell you, I still don't like public speaking. If I had to go up in front of a group and say something, I'd be scared to death. But I'm not afraid of you because I have the word of God and this is what I'm called to. There's a world of difference when you know that you're being sent into this place as a lamb to wolves. The people we used to fear, we now love. We now go in confidence because we have what they need. Jesus says you go, in that, that you go with that kind of, of, of a mission, that kind of a purpose, because you're being sent as a sheep, as a lamb among wolves. But I think the second reason he says this is precisely what I said. The second thought is because a lot of times the call to the harvest is going is to require us to go to a difficult place, to go to an uncomfortable place. Maybe it's you got to talk to someone at work. Because you feel that conviction in your heart that, man, I cannot, I cannot go another day without sharing with this beloved coworker about the hope of Christ. We've been to basketball games together. We've been to soccer games together. We've been to the mall together. We've been to restaurants together. But I, by God, if I don't bring them to heaven with me together. You have this burden in your heart, and maybe that might require you to go to an uncomfortable place in the relationship. But is it worth it for the sake of the harvest for you to go? To go to a boss. I tell you, in China, people are losing their jobs because they're standing for Christ amongst the harvest. It's because of the harvest that people are willing to go into uncomfortable places. It's why our sisters and our brothers go to the mission field. It's why they go to Ecuador. It's why they lay down their dreams of the American dream in order to see the kingdom dreams fulfilled in their lifetime. It's why we go to places like the Middle East. It's why we go to to Egypt. Why we go to Jordan. Why we go to, to China, to North Korea. Because we believe in the mission of God. That there's a people who need to know the hope of Christ. Even if it means I'm going to be sent as a lamb amongst the wolves to go to uncomfortable places. Because there's a harvest that is plentiful, but it's the workers that are few. And the call of our Savior demands and mandates that we go into uncomfortable places, to ruffle the feathers of a friend, to rock the boat in a relationship. But sometimes that's what it costs for us to go because a lot of times the call of God is, hey, I'm sending you as a lamb amongst the wolves. I heard a missionary story recently, a young missionary couple, husband and wife, and and they were in the Middle East in a very difficult, they weren't in a difficult country per se, but the part of the country that they were in was a very bad place to be for Christians. And they probably shouldn't have been there, but they were driving through there in order to get somewhere else. And it was a desert area, deserted area. There was no, uh, not much civilization. It's the kind of place where uh, if you were to get stuck on the side of the road, AAA wouldn't, I mean, there's no AAA out there, but it would take them like months to come, right? That's where they are. And so they're in this place trying to get through this area, but oh, their gas is running low. So they're like, man, if we could just make it out of this place, we'd be awesome, but we don't know where the next gas station is going to be. And so they said, whatever gas station we see, we're going to gas up and get out of there as soon as we can. So they pull into this gas station. 
and standing at the gas station at the gas pump is a dude with a turban on who's just like staring at them, just like glaring at this couple, this white Anglo-Caucasian couple who are completely out of place in this deserted desert place in this Middle Eastern country. These missionaries write the story. They say it's the kind of place that white Christian missionaries from America would die and no one would ever know. Police would never come. They would never care. So they're praying, oh, God, help us to get out of here alive. And so this dude with the turban is just staring. He's just glaring at them, just burning a hole within their souls as they fill up in the gas station. They fill up. They put the thing in. They pay the the guy, and then they get out of there. And as they're driving off, he's still staring at them as they look out their rearview mirror. And so in silence, they drive for about five minutes or so. And after about five minutes of driving, the dude in the car breaks the silence. And he's like, hey, this is going to sound psycho. And I don't know what you're going to think about it, but I just, man, I just can't shake this sense that I feel like God is calling us to go back and tell that dude about Jesus. What do you do? That's your husband. What do you say, wife? What do you say to him? This is what she said. She said, I'd rather be the widow of a martyr than to be the wife of a coward. That's the kind of person you've got to marry, men of God. Rather be the widow of a martyr than the wife of a coward. They turn back, same car, probably the only car for minutes, hours, who knows. Come back, he's still burning a hole through their eyes. He's staring at them as they come back in. A man gets out of the car, ready to die. Says to the man, I, I just couldn't help but think I needed to come back and, and tell you about a man named Jesus Christ. The man, without ever breaking gaze, says, two days ago I had a dream that I was supposed to come here and wait for someone to tell me something important, something that I've been needing to hear for my entire life. I've been waiting for you to come and bring this news to me. Do you think that this man and this wife had any regrets that they went to that uncomfortable place because there was one guy who needed to know the hope of the gospel? Like This is what it means to go forth into the harvest. A lot of times, God sends us. It's not an accident. He sends you into uncomfortable places because there are people there who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the second thing. Last thing that we see is that harvesters pack lightly for the sake of the harvest. Pack lightly for the sake of the harvest. Verse 3, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Hold up. Those are the very things that we long for. 
That was on my Christmas wish list before we did this whole Advent conspiracy thing. These are the things I know. I want a purse. I want a bag. I want sandals. Jesus says, don't take it. Leave all that stuff behind. Because isn't it true that so often it's these things that keep us from being able to move for the sake of the gospel? You know, I, I, I talked with people who say, yeah, I really want to move to a different home, to a different house. But the number one reason, if I'm anticipating Darren's son, I say, yeah, it's easy. It's finances. They don't say finances. Yeah, it's school district. It's, you don't want to pull your kids out of school. It's not that. I got too much stuff to pack up and to move. Isn't that crazy? The more stuff you have, the harder it is for you to move. Jesus is saying here, listen, guys, listen, if you're a child of God, if you're living for the harvest, you need to be ready to pack all of your stuff. You need to be ready to preach at any time, and you need to perish in any moment because you're being sent out as a lamb among the wolves. And the more stuff you have, the harder it is for you to be able to move. So here he says, don't take any of that stuff, no bag, no sandal, no purse with you, just go, just go. Just go and tell people about Jesus. There's a, um, I was reading this, this, this piece this week written by a guy named S.D. Gordon. He lived like hundreds of years ago. He's talking about uh, this group of people who were climbing. It was a, it was a tour group that was climbing uh, Mont Blanc and the Swiss Alps. And they were climbing that as mountain climbers. And, and so there was a tour guide there. And the tour guide said, hey, um, as we get ready to climb, right, tomorrow as we climb the mountain, uh, leave everything that you've got back at your hotel. Right? Leave everything at base. Right? We're just going to take only what you need to climb. That's all you need to bring. Like, all right, get a good night's sleep and eat a good breakfast and then come back. So they came back the next morning and everybody came with just their bare necessities, except for this one young English dude. Right, this one Englishman came, and he had his, camp, his hiking gear, his mountain climbing gear. But you know what else he brought? He brought, and I, I don't know why they explained it like this, but they said he brought his brightly colored blanket. Right? He brought a brightly colored blanket. Maybe he thought at the top it would get cold. So he brought that blanket. He also brought a bunch of camera equipment to take some amazing pictures from the top of the Alps. He also brought a ton of cheese with him. I, I don't know what it is with these English people, but he brought cheese, and then he brought this big old bottle of wine. We're going to drink wine together at the top of Mont Blanc. And then the last thing he brought was he brought all of these expensive chocolates. <laughs> he brought these chocolates. Right? Uh, I'm not making this up. This is how it happened. And so they're like, dude, what's wrong with you? Like, why you got all that stuff? And he's like, you'll see. We're going to need it at some point. And so uh, the, uh, the, the, the guide said, yeah, we can't leave anyone behind. Uh, the weakest one has to go in front of us so that we can make sure he doesn't fall. So we'll let that, you know, English guy go first. And so he's climbing up. And as each of these guys are climbing up the mountain, they look over and they're like, hey, that's his brightly colored blanket right there on the side of the mountain. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> as they're climbing and hiking up the mountain even further, they're like, wait, there's his cheese. <laughs> there goes his cheese on the side of the mountain. As they're walking up further, they're like, hey, there's the bottle of wine that <laughs> he brought up. And they're climbing. 
They're like, oh, that's his camera equipment. He left his camera equipment behind. And then finally, the last thing is they're climbing up the mountain. They saw his most prized possession <laughs> that he could not live without but until finally he realized he had to. He left his chocolate on the side of the mountain. They passed by all of that stuff as they were climbing up. Because he realized, <clears throat> if I want to fulfill the mission, I've got to lighten the load. i got to pack lightly. This is what they said. As they climbed that mountain, they said there were plains that were occupied and inhabited by people who began this journey up the mountain but decided that they would not let go of all of their stuff, so they stopped and they pitched a tent with all of their belongings and they gave up on the mission that they had when they began it. As we climb the mountain towards our mission, which is the harvest, we have one of two options, my friends. Some of us are stopped over on a plane in our tent with all of our stuff, saying the view from here is good enough. I'm not willing to let go of any of my stuff, but I'm willing to let go of the mission of the harvest because I don't want to let go of these earthly things, this relationship, this hope for a relationship, this dream, this whatever. You fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you say, Jesus, if you only give me this, then I'll be happy in life. Whatever this thing is, that's what's going to keep you from climbing the mountain of God all the way. doesn't mean you can't have those things. It means they need to be properly ordered in your life as your servant, not as your master. Because idols make terrible masters. The other option is we'll let go of the things that we need, that we think we need, the things we long for, the things we want, in order that we can make it and fulfill the mission that God has for us. What does that look like for us? What does it look like? These days, all the rage, decluttering, minimalism, con-marie. <laughs> what would it look like for you to con-marie your spiritual life? to declutter your spiritual life. What would it look like for you? I'll tell you what it would look like for me. To my shame, this is what I have to say. One of the most painful apps in my life on my iPhone is this app called the Screen Time app. This thing kicks my butt. Every Sunday, I get this notification saying, here's your screen time for the week. You know what it says? It says, on average, and it might, today my percentage went down, 17% from last week. I spend over four hours on my phone every day. And I pick up my phone 86 times a day. That is insane. For what purpose do I need to be? It's not working out, right? <laughs> it's 86 times doing this. What does it mean for you to con Marie, to declutter, to, to pack lightly, to let go of the things that don't matter? I'll tell you one of the things it can mean as we begin a Daniel fast tomorrow. Can I challenge some of you who said, no way, I'm not going to do it because it's hard. We talked about this last week. Of course it's hard. It's the way you grow because it's hard. Nobody, 
this is not making my muscles any stronger right here, okay? Because it's not hard. Unless it's hard, we're not going to grow. But for those of you who are thinking, yeah, you know what? Uh, I have no thought in my mind to do it. Can I challenge you today? Hey, let's, let's do this together, okay? Let's do this together. Let's think about what could happen. Not, it's not just about the food, right? Obviously, it's not. Because the more it's about the food, it becomes about the food. <laughs> it's, about, it's about saying, hey, media and social media, I'm going to let go of these things for 21 days, and I'm going to see how beautiful my life can be and how lean it can be and how joyful my worship can be as I seek more of God. As I focus my attention, maybe for the next 21 days, let's pray for people who don't know Jesus. Intentionally, purposefully, maybe at, 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 at 10.02 a.m., Luke 10, verse 2, or at 10.02 p.m. Just do that every day. Set an alarm. Hey, I'm going to pray for the lost. I'm going to pray for people who don't know Jesus. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for them. And, and, and let go of these things so that you can climb the mountain of God. Here's what it looks like when Lent comes around, 40 days of Lent. Hey, let's think about the things we're going to let go of. Oh, I don't want to do Lent. I don't want to be like Catholic people. I don't want to be like, ah. We can come up with all the reasons why we don't want to do it. But at the end of the day, one reason why you should, Jesus. (laughs) That's it. Right? That's the answer at the back of the book. The answer to every question of why, Jesus. That's the answer. Do it for him. Do it for Jesus. Do it for the gospel. Do it for the harvest. Do it for the lost. Because you see, at the end of the day, what really matters is that when Jesus looked out at the crowds, he saw they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The harvest is plentiful. And if you're not part of the harvest now, then you're a harvester. If you're a harvester, that means at one point in your life, you are part of the harvest. At one point, Jesus looked at you and he saw, and maybe some of this, some of that's us today. You feel like this. You feel harassed. You feel helpless. You feel beat up. You feel all alone. You feel like there's, you're, you're a sheep without a shepherd. I don't know where I'm going. I'm getting, I'm getting torn apart by the wolves. My, I'm bleeding. I don't know. Jesus looks on you with compassion. He suffers with you. He comes near to you. And the ultimate, as we try to make our lives lean, Jesus took weight upon himself. What weight was that? It was my sin. It was your sin. It was my shame. It was your shame. It was your past. It was your brokenness. It was your flaws. It was your mistakes. It was your weaknesses. It's your promiscuity. It's all of the things that you've done. Jesus took that weight upon himself. And at the cross, he became harassed. He was beat up. He was left to die. He became helpless. Even his own father abandoned him. In order that we might know what it is to be loved with that kind of a love. <clears throat> it's when we, <clears throat> when we understand that kind of love. When we know what he's done for us. He calls us to go forth to see the they're just like us. Salvation is not, hey, I used to be really bad, but now I'm pretty good. It's, hey, I was dead and didn't have a chance, but now I'm alive in him. It's one beggar telling another beggar where they can get free bread. That's all it is.
But here's our choices. We're going to climb the mountain of God towards that mission that he has for us, and we're going to see glory on the other side. Or we could settle for the plains, arms filled with cheese and wine and chocolate, and say, Lord, I think it's good enough from here. I want to close with a poem that was written by a man named Charles Studd. Uh, He was uh, the man in England in the 1800s. He was uh, the biggest celebrity in his time. He was the biggest star, the biggest sport, good-looking, had everything, but he left all of that for the sake of the harvest to work with a man named Hudson Taylor in China to bring people who didn't know Jesus to the saving knowledge of Christ. Um, This is a poem that you may not have heard before, but you may have heard some of the lines to it. And I'll read this, and then we'll close, and then we'll come and receive his grace. It says, two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will alone to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears, each with its clay days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world, now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray together. What is your life, brothers and sisters? It's the vapor. You're here today and gone tomorrow. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's take a minute to come to the Lord in prayer, to surrender our hearts. Say, Lord, help me. This singular life that I have, that I would live it for you and for your glory. So Jesus, help me. Let's pray together for a minute and we'll continue to worship the Lord.
asking for his forgiveness and his cleansing over our hearts for the ways in which we have pursued things that were not Jesus. Good things, great things, but not the ultimate. Surrender our idols before the Lord in order that we might receive his grace today. Let's pray together for a couple more moments. Father in heaven, we thank you that the word of God from the beloved apostle tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to purify us from all unrighteousness. So we receive that cleansing knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand with our heads lifted high in the free grace of God, not by anything we've done, simply because you are good and you love us. We pray that you would help us to live this one life, that our one stone of a life thrown into the ponds of time would cause ripple effects that would cause many people to experience the life of Christ that we found in you. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.